So I went by Panera this morning. And tequila wasn't there. Tequila, are you here? And if you weren't here last week, I'm not calling for alcohol. <laughs> I met a, met a young lady that we got to talking about the Lord and church a little bit. <clears throat> but let me tell you this. Um, men, those of you that were here Friday night, was it an incredible event or what? Was it awesome? It really was. It really was. Uh, Rick Burgess from the show Rick and Bubba was here, and we had our wild game dinner. And by the looks of it, there were some wild men here too, <laughs> guys that don't come to town often. But uh, Nay Weaver and, and the Shanks and just a host, an army of volunteers uh, led by, by Ken Bevel did an incredible, exceptional job. Of, of doing of cooking, great, great food, and it was, it was run really well, great prizes were given out, but I have to tell you one story. So here in the service, we had six men who chose to wave the white flag of their life and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? And I was sharing with our pastor's prayer partners this morning that I had the opportunity to drive Rick and his group back to the airport, uh, Albany International. And uh, <laughs> there's one gate, so you're always number one for takeoff, right? But at any rate, uh, we got out there and, and, and went into the area that's aside from the regular terminal, it's where the private planes come in. And uh, there was a gentleman that was sitting behind the counter, and I'm carrying some books, and other people are carrying different merchandise that Rick brought with them. And um, they had gifted Rick, because he loves fishing. He's an avid, avid fisherman. They gifted Rick this, this beautiful bait caster rod and reel, really, really nice. And um, so he's got that with him. So we walk out to the plane, and we're loading up the plane, and Rick comes out. And we talk for a minute and pray together and just thank him again. And then when I walk back in, the guy that's sitting behind the counter is holding the rod and reel, and he's got the most dumbfounded look on his face. And I said, did he give you that rod and reel? He said, yeah. He said, I just started fishing, and I, I'm learning how. He said, this, I don't have anything. This is the nicest one I've ever seen. His name was Rod. <laughs> I'm not making that up. This is a true story. And I said, well, your name's Rod, so you get one. And I'm thinking, I wish my name was Carr, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I got to talking. I said, Rod, do you know who that was? I said, do you know why he gave you that? I said, people that have been blessed should be the people that bless the most. And I said, he does that not because he's a good guy, but he does that because there's a good God that lives inside of him. And so I was able to walk through the gospel with Rod, and he prayed to receive Christ at the airport Friday night. And so I'm taking him to lunch this week. I'm going to try. He doesn't have a Bible, so I'm going to put a Bible and some different things in his, in his hands to try to get him walking with Jesus and hopefully get him baptized. So if you see me here with a guy holding a fishing pole, give him a hug. All right? <laughs> Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on in this passage. Um, Jesus has already been crucified, and he has ascended. Uh, the Holy Spirit has fallen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. And the church is exploding, and they're, they're being built everywhere. And when I mean built, I mean established in homes. 
And so regions are coming to faith in Christ at this point. And so the disciples are going around and sharing the gospel and teaching about Christ. And it's obviously getting them into trouble. It's the very thing that Jesus was crucified for. Jesus wasn't crucified for anything that he did wrong. He was crucified for what he had done right. And so here in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just been accused of doing the most unthinkable, despicable thing. They healed a beggar, a lame beggar, they, a man who was crippled. And scripture in Acts chapter 4 tells us that he was actually um, born that way. He was born in Acts chapter 3 uh, lame. And so they carried him every day. He was carried by family, friends, neighbors to a gate called the Beautiful Gate. And he would sit there and he would beg. He would ask for money. And he had done it so long that uh, people had grown accustomed to it. It had become kind of the white noise of life. So Peter and James or Peter and John are walking in, and he's asking for money. And they had to say, "Look at us. Draw your attention to us." And wrapping it up, they said, "Listen, you want silver and gold. We don't have any money, but what I do have, I'll give to you." Rise and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, obviously, they rise, he rises and he walks. And it says that he had been crippled since birth, so this wasn't fake. This wasn't some kind of false healing to where, I mean, it was undeniable. This is a man that everybody in the region had known. They'd known him all of his life. And nobody has a trick going on that long. And so they assemble together. Meet, let's meet together before we get in Acts chapter 4 in the passage we're going to be in. Look at verse 7. They're now facing uh, Caiaphas and a list of other incredibly important and powerful men. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was crucified. And so you need to know that Peter and John... If this wasn't real to them, they saw what was done to Jesus. It would have been easy for them to turn around and, and, and wave the white flag and call it off and say, you got us. They know what happened to Jesus. They were present. They saw what happened. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst and they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8 here in Acts chapter 4 really sums up not just the chapter, but sums up the entire book of Acts. Then Peter, and this is important, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. So Peter and John are being questioned by Caiaphas and the different religious leaders of the day. Just days, weeks, may possibly on the long side, months earlier, more likely to be about two and a half, three weeks, Jesus was crucified. They said, hey, listen, whose authority are you doing this in? Peter, who had denied Jesus just chapters earlier, to servant girls saying, I don't know the man, out of fear, boldly stands up, faces Jesus' executioner, 
and says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this man is well and he stands before you. By the way, the man that you crucified. He didn't say that was crucified. He did not take the path of least resistance, which is often what we as Christians do. I think sometimes we as Christians, we have, we have played defense so long that we forget what it's like to take ground for the kingdom of Christ. That we need to have our speech seasoned with grace and truth, with love and salt, that it is to be a healing irritant in the wound that is the lost world. Skip down to verse 17. They, they can't believe what's happening. And so they're, they're trying to plan and trying to come up with a way to figure out what they're going to do to keep these men quiet. Verse 17 says this. But that in order that it may spread no further, it's talking about the news of the man being healed, among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John addressed them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot help but to speak of what we have seen and heard. What would it look like, church, if we took that same ideology and practiced it in our day-to-day -day life? That instead of being fearful of being rejected by people at our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our families, we would be more feel fearful of them stepping into a Christless eternity in a real place called hell. What if I was willing and you were willing to lay aside our pride of possibly looking foolish and out of love was compelled to teach the gospel and to speak of the, the greatness that God is and what he's done in my life and in your life. Because that's really what it comes down to. We, we blame it on the busyness of our schedule, but we've never been more connected to the world and less engaged than right here and right now. And if we believe what the Bible say, it says is true, and if we believe that God is who he says he is and that we as sinners are who we say we are, then we understand that without him we are absolutely in destitution and lost. And if that's true, then we have to be, we must be compelled to listen and to be, be obeyers of the word, not just learners of Bible trivia. That God calls us to obey his word. Let's meet together in verse 23. They were in prison. They were thrown in jail overnight. I want you to read what happened. When they were released, they went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly this is the city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is still a prayer. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, 
Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your world word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The first thing we see in this passage is that worship and prayer are always proper responses to anything that we face. Worship and prayer are always proper responses to anything we face. And life happens all the time. There's some days that are good. There's some days that are bad. There's some days that you just can't wait to get to bed. Some mornings you wake up and you wish that the alarm had not gone off quite yet because you know what you're going to face. And life's hard. And life's difficult. And one of the tools of the enemy is that he tries to get us to think that we're the only ones that are going through the difficult times that we're going through. The enemy deals best in the area of isolation. And if he can get you to feel like you are on this pity party island and woe is me and no one understands, then it causes you, creates in you the inability to reach out and to possibly see someone to walk a mile, not in your shoes, but next to you. You see, the Father says that I am here for you. That he is the burden bearer. That he is the great I am. He is at all places, at all times, and knows all things. And the enemy does everything he can do to make you think that you're living life alone. We look at this passage, we're confronted. When they were confronted with the problems, they first, they chose community over isolation. You say, what's the big deal? What's the... What's the big deal about that, Stephen? Why is that important? It's important because God calls us to live in community. You remember last week I read the passage that we should, we should um, wisely share our struggles and our, our sin with, with other people who are, are walking with Christ. Not that they're going to gossip, not that they're going to blog about it and put you, you know, your stuff out on a billboard on, on Slappy Boulevard. But people that, that will pray for you, people that will encourage you, people that will correct you. Nobody likes being corrected, but we all need it. And here's what I know about me and some of my friends and, and men that, that I know in ministry and in, in the secular world. If people know that you love them, there's not much that they won't allow you to say to them. If people know that you care for them, there's not much that they won't allow you to speak into their life. They didn't go home and isolate themselves and say, well, I guess this is where it gets really tough. Hey, remember, that's Caiaphas. That's not what happened. They went and they gathered with their friends. They gathered with like-minded men and women and said, here's what happened. The second thing is that they placed their eyes on Jesus. Verse 24, as soon as they had told him, they said, and when they had heard it, they lifted their voice together and said, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign means that God is over all things. He is in control of all things. Now, before you run rampant and allow poor theology to kind of creep into your heart, let me qualify that by saying this. God is sovereign, 
But sin has ransacked our world. Not just humanity, but even the natural world. Straight line winds and tornadoes and hurricanes and, 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 and uh, poverty and, and things like that. It absolutely has changed everything from what God desired his best and his design was for our life. And it's changed everything. They took their eyes off of their issue and they put them on Jesus. They also chose to be victors and not victims. Verse 31, it says, When they had prayed together in the place where they were gathered together, it was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We are, and I am so quick to want to garner attention for things that I've done or things I've been a part of, especially when things are bad. Maybe if our first response was to pray about the things that we're facing, our faith wouldn't look as weak to a lost world. If all the lost people in the world had to decide if they were going to come to Jesus based on what they see in me or based on what they see in you, would anyone trust Christ? John and Peter are walking in this incredibly bold way and, and, and doing things that the apostles were doing. It was just run of the meal, but they were healing people in the name of Jesus, being persecuted for it. And instead of asking God to take away their persecution, they said, God, would you give us more boldness to do what you're calling us to do? Knowing that that may thrust us into the area of facing greater and more intensified persecution, even death, not only for us, but our family, would you give us the boldness that we need to make a greater impact and a dent in the world for the gospel of Christ? The second thing we see is that Christ followers can trust God's timing. If you're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll read scripture and miss the nuances of what's being communicated. Verse 27, you see that Satan has tried to stack the deck against the Father. Verse 27 says, for truly in this city, meaning this place, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and the people of Israel. There were four groups of people that had just days earlier welcomed Jesus into the city, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna in the highest. You are welcome here. And now four groups of people, you've put him here, you anointed Jesus, and they are against him. Look at what verse 28 says. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We can trust God's timing in our life. You see, when Jesus was being confronted, when he was being persecuted, when he was being killed, God was not absent. This was God's plan. And I've heard it said from this platform before, the enemy, Satan, tends to always play his hand a little too early. When the world thinks that it's one, Jesus is still seated on the throne. Four groups of people, the city, Gentiles, Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, all of these people had conspired against Jesus and were chanting for him to be crucified. And verse 28, in their prayer, they says, but you knew this would happen. This was a part of your plan. 
Hey, church, let me ask you something. I know that we, I am quick to pray for reprieval for issues that I'm facing and things that I'm struggling with. What if God's greatest work that he desires to do in us is in our struggle? What if God needs us to be in the struggle to teach us what he needs to teach us? More times than not, I know that's true for me. And I'd be willing to bet that it's true for you. And while none of us want to face struggles and none of us want to fight our way uphill, sometimes that's exactly where God wants us because he wants to do a great work in our life. Verse 3 says, focus, or we see in uh, number 3, to focus on the will of God rather than on our problems. Instead of praying this entire passage about what's going on, God deliver me, God heal me, put a hedge of protection. I always think it's funny, and I think people mean the best, and I've said it too, but whenever we're traveling, right, that's when we put a hedge of protection. Put two hedges of protection. I mean, like, if one hedge of protection is good, why not ten hedges of protection? Like, we don't ask, like, God, put a hedge of protection around this corn dog because I don't choke on it when I'm eating. Like, we only, it's travel mercies, right, and a hedge of protection. I know what we mean by that, but we end up praying about the issues that we're facing. We spend all of this time on the issues that we're facing. They mention it once right here in verse 29. This is what they say. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's only mentioned right here in verse 29, and only half of it is about what they're, what they're facing. What if we're praying upside down? What if just by the selfish nature of humanity that the enemy has lulled us into the thinking that prayer's okay because we're not even praying the way God desires for us to pray? What if instead of praying upside down, God desires that we would pray inside out? We would spend less time on our troubles and our problems and more times on the greatness of who he is and what he desires to do in us and through us and around us, no matter what that may look like. The fourth thing we see is that boldness requires action. It says, when they had prayed, the place had shaken that they were in. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word with God, of God with all boldness. That it's not just enough to be bold in your faith if you're not willing to do anything. You could be the greatest baseball player in the world and never swing a bat or field a ball. And it doesn't make you very effective. You can be the fastest man in the world and never run a race, and it doesn't make you very effective. Those of us that are Christ followers in this room have the living, eternal, just expansive power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And for the most part, spiritually, we're very inactive and ineffective. And that's the reason that homes look the way they look. And that's the reason that our town looks the way that our look. And our state and our country. 
It's the reason that other countries are sending missionaries to our Christian nation to reach people with the living gospel. That maybe we have been lulled to sleep into thinking that all God desires for me to do and for you to do is to trust him, get baptized, join the Sunday school class, and not mess up and to live a moral life. God's not asking you to be moral. God's asking you to be holy. And if we will live holy, morality will take care of itself. And if we will live holy, if we'll genuinely believe what God's word says about us and the power that's available to us and through us, it would completely change the way that we treat people. It would change the way that we love. It would change the way that we give. It would change the way that we serve. That we wouldn't have this consumer mentality Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? But Father, what can I give? How can I serve? Where can I go? Who do I need to talk to in the line at Walmart? Who do I need to talk to? The guy that mows my lawn, my neighbors. I'm not as concerned about what they think about me. I want them to be passionately in love with you. Maybe God's planted you and I in the house that we're in in the neighborhood that we're in, in the job that we're in, not, be ju not just because we needed a job or we liked the floor plan or the school system, maybe God's put us there to live on mission for the gospel, which is drastically different than the way most of us think about it, including me. In this passage, we're, we're looking that boldness is not just enough without action. Boldness, it should be in your notes, is not just reckless impulsiveness it's not a ready fire aim boldness is recognizing the possible friction and pressing through our fears to do what we know is biblically right i've got a coffee mug in my um my office and it's got john wayne on it i, I like john wayne uh, I'm, I'm nothing like him he's rough and tough and wore chaps at least in the movies and rode a horse and i'm scared of horses and and uh but john wayne's got this really great quote he says courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway hey church it's time to saddle up it's just time and I'm not just calling you to sign up for the prayer chapel. Can I tell you, that's not the end game for my heart. The end game for my heart is that you would sign up to live on mission for Christ. Do I want you in the prayer chapel? Absolutely. But there are some things we don't have to pray about, and those things are obeying what God's already clearly said in this word. I don't have to pray about sharing the gospel. I don't have to pray about um, uh, giving to, to, to the, our local church. I don't have to pray about spending time in the Word. I don't have to pray about spending, uh, um, treating my wife kindly or looking out for orphans and widows. Like, there are things we don't have to pray about. We don't have to muddy the water and to make something that's incredibly simplistic in the area of obedience and make it nearly impossible and to, to muddy it all up. It's a quote that possibly many of you have heard before. Robert McMurray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. The last thing we see in this passage is that we need to pray believing. 
I wonder what it looks like to the Father sometimes when he hears our prayers. When he hears them and he sees us and he knows that we're not really trusting him for what we're asking for. That we're just simply blowing hot air. That we don't really mean what we're talking about. Mark eleven twenty four says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. James 1, 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What are we praying for that we're not truly believing God for? You've got two choices. You either stop praying about it or you start believing God for it. I said just earlier during the welcome that God has a rich history of doing the impossible. I really mean that. I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in the life of many of you. I've seen that in my walk with Christ over two and a half decades. And some of you have seen that too. We have to come to a place where we we remember what it was like to be lost and never get over our salvation. And even if we need to pray that prayer of David, Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me to remember what it was like when I met you, when I moved from absolute darkness to absolute light. When I moved from death to life, you changed everything. Does my life, does your life reflect that Jesus has changed everything? If not, why not? Some of us need a checkup, a tune-up. We need to re-engage the living God who died for us, who saved us, who called us to himself. These people, these believers are like you and I. They set an example that while they were facing untold persecution and threats, murderous threats, being imprisoned for it, watching their Savior be murdered for what he believed, they said, God, would you give us boldness to continue this? That anything worth dying for is worth living for. And that is Christianity in a nutshell. It's exactly what Jesus did for me and what Jesus did for you. And maybe you're in here and you're like one of those, those men's uh, Friday nights where you realized, hey, I'm an absolute mess and I'm lost. Maybe you're in here and you have trusted forever in your morality. You think because you're good that that makes you godly. Scripture says that none are righteous, no, not one. There's not enough money you can give to meet the need. There's not enough wells that you can, you can dig in, in Africa. There's not enough uh, coats that you can send to kids in Antarctica. There's not enough good that you and I can do to uh, win the unmerited approval and love and forgiveness of our Father. Maybe you don't feel like you've done anything wrong and that you don't need Jesus. It's delusional. Because we're sinners. I am and you are. And this room is filled with two types of people, people that have either trusted Christ or people that haven't. And the ones that have are just as lost as those of you that are in this room that haven't. And we want to give you an opportunity today to trust Christ. 
being a member at Sherwood's not going to save you. Walking this aisle is not going to save you. The only thing that is going to save you is you putting your faith in the one who can. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all, everybody. All means all, and that's all all means. It will forever mean everyone. Romans 6.23 says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you're in the middle of your most debaucherous act, or in the middle of all your morality, Christ saw it and he still died for you. He chose to. He saw it from the beginning of time and he still died for you. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. We realize that we're sinners and that we're lost. We see that he's a savior. We ask for forgiveness. We turn from our sin and trust Savior, the Savior of Christ. We confess him with our mouth. We believe in our heart. We want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Maybe you're here and you just, you need to pray. Maybe there's something that you've been praying about for years, but you haven't been believing God for. That you've just simply started going through the motions. Maybe you've always gone through the motions. Our pastors will be down front in a moment. They'd want to pray with you. Maybe you'd want to pray by yourself. Whatever decision you need to make today, this is a, a place of love. This is a place of truth. And this is a place where you can get what's wrong in your life right. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you care for us the way that you do and that you're patient the way that you are. Lord, we know that you've called us to something very big. You've called us to trust you in areas that are difficult at times. So God, help us to be people of great faith. For people that might be in this room today that have not trusted you as Savior, I pray that, Father, they would do that this morning. For people that know that there are things they need to get right with you, with someone else, I pray that, Jesus, you would give them the boldness to not just want to, but to do it. That their faith would become an action step and an action word. Lord, would you have your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you come as Seth leads?